Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm pumped tonight, folks. One of my favorite guys in the whole world is here. He returns. Yes, he does. Tom Lipscomb's here. I haven't talked to Tom in far too long. I think the last time, Tom, actually we spoke, I was still living in Sudbury. So that's quite a while ago. Now we're broadcasting from beautiful Kingston by the sea. Tonight, folks, we're going to be looking at Last Man in Spando. This is a play that Tom's written. Now, it's the mystery surrounding Rudolf Hess's flight, his murder, and suspected SAS involvement in that murder. But it also showcases the possibility, the real possibility, that Hess's journey during the Second World War, when he landed in Lord Hamilton's front yard, so to speak, (laughs) he just dropped in, was actually part of a covert operation to take over the British government, and to oust Churchill. We'll get into that in a second. Folks, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going. This is a show you don't want to miss. Sit in your most comfy chair, relax, kick your feet up. You've earned this time for yourself. Now, the Nazi juggernaut was ripping across Europe, and it looked as though nothing could stop them. Country after country fell to the onslaught just after the decimated British forces were forced out of France at Dunkirk. I'm going to be looking at that tonight, too. And just weeks prior, Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi invasion of Soviet Russia, and Nazi Messerschmitt was sighted flying into British airspace over Scotland in the dead of night. Inside the cockpit was none other than Hitler's number one man, Rudolf Hess. His mission? To take part in an emerging covert plot and coup instigated from the upper echelon, you ready for this? Of British power to overthrow both the British government and remove Churchill. The next step was to appease and make peace with the Nazis and Hitler. Now, this story has all the making of a master mystery novel full of intrigue and plot twists, except for one thing, folks. This is true. Pulitzer Prize nominee Tom Lipscomb, let me see that again because I love to say that, Tom. Pulitzer Prize nominee, nonchalantly, Tom Lipscomb has done impeccable investigation, as always, to the highest standards and has turned this epic into a stunning new play called Last Man in Spandau. The mystery surrounding Rudolf Hess' flight, his subsequent murder, and suspected SAS involvement. Now, you'll never believe just how close we came to losing the war, except for the will of one single solitary man, Winston Churchill. Tom has been a CEO in the book publishing industry, where he's responsible for bestsellers by authors as diverse as Agatha Christie, Susan Isaacs, Craig Claiborne, Jack Anderson, William Sapphire. He also went down, I think it was in 67, if I'm not mistaken, Tom to Chile and brought back Shea Guevara's personal diaries. This is a heavy hitter tonight, folks. Yeah, no kidding. Books he has published have won literary, literary awards, such as the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Awards. Tom's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Harper's, The Nation, as well as the Reader's Digest, etc. Front page stories in the Chicago Sun-Times, the New York Sun, and articles in internet sites such as the Huffington Post, Tech Central Station, and the Jewish World Review. He was put up for a Pulitzer Prize in 2005 by his newspaper, 
for investigative reporting. Tom, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad you can make it. I have to preface this. Tom is being a super trooper tonight because he's just getting over pneumonia. And uh, so thank you, Tom, for appearing tonight. This is wonderful to have you here. Nice to be here with you again, Brett. It's just wonderful. Okay, let's jump in right away, shall we? 1941, the expeditionary force has just been almost decimated by Hitler's juggernaut of Blitzkrieg. They've been split in two. You've got most of the French in the southern part of France, most of the French fighters in the southern part of France, most of the British fighters are in the northern part of France, with the Germans right in the middle. The only thing that the British expeditionary force could do was funnel to a place called Dunkirk. Can we start there? Sure. Okay. Can you tell us a basic synopsis of what happened at Dunkirk? Well, the main thing to keep in mind about Dunkirk was that the French army, who we often make fun of, did incredibly yeoman service protecting the evacuating troops, even though they knew they were going to get left on the beach. And the British and some French, more than 100,000 French troops, got away. But it was an amazing exercise, and no one could figure out how it happened. I mean, my goodness, three days of evacuating troops and everything from converted ferry boats to the little ships we heard so much about, and Mrs. Miniver has a wonderful scene with that. Uh, how in heaven's name could Hitler's juggernaut give three days for these troops to get offshore? And the answer is fascinating. It's been, been a lot of speculation, and the British historians have speculated that it's because the rush through France was so fast that a lot of the German equipment was breaking down, needed repairing, they needed to be resupplied, and so it was dangerous to take on a cornered force on the beaches of Dunkirk. Nonsense. The truth is, and we know this from the General Halder, who was the head of Hitler's general staff, we know that Hitler called the halt and infuriated all his Wehrmacht generals who wanted to kill off the British. And Hitler had a reason for this. He said, how are we going to make peace with the British if we destroy their army? So Hitler had peace on the mind with the British at the very time he had 325,000 troops at his mercy on the beaches of Dunkirk. But what he did is quite interesting. As the King George of England said at the time, we left all our heavy equipment on the beach. And it means that he had, in effect, light infantry going back to England. He couldn't do squat. He had no tanks. He had no heavy armaments. He was in terrible trouble. But interestingly enough, since this is about Hess as well, the worst fight Rudolf Hess ever had with Adolf Hitler was over this issue. Hess wanted to absolutely exterminate the British troops. And his wife recounts this in one of her books, that nonetheless, Hitler said, no, 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 Rudy, we have to let them go. And Hess was in a funk about it. So that's the true story of Dunkirk. It was a present from Adolf Hitler. Courage, good planning by the British, but basically it could never have happened if Hitler hadn't allowed it. Why did the British end up in Dunkirk? What were the, some of the follies that they did? Well, the problem they had, good for them for ending up in Dunkirk, it could have been a lot worse. What happened was when the Germans came through the Ardennes Forest, where the, the one between the Maginot Line 
and the British and French troops who were up in the Netherlands and Belgium, thinking that was the attack route that the Germans were going to take, they split right between the forces, okay? So the British had a choice. They could either get swallowed up by a hook uh, of the Wehrmacht, if they head north, they'd be cut off in the Netherlands or in Belgium or in northern France, or they could run like hell for the beach and try and get taken off because they knew they had naval control of the sea and they knew the RAF was in pretty good shape. And they did a brilliant job fighting their way against tremendous odds and getting to the beach. Now, Hitler wanted to stop. He wanted to make peace with Britain. Why was making peace with Britain so important? Did they not feel that they could just run over Britain in the same sense that they ran over France and all the other countries before? You see, there, 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 there are two things to worry about. There's all this water. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of water between Germany and France <laughs> or Poland. There's a lot of water. And in that water is the largest navy in the world. Uh, Hitler, at this point of the war, was not a complete fool. Okay, so number one, it didn't make a lot of military sense. But number two, he didn't want to be fighting the British and French to begin with. It was all a mistake. It was a mistake. British and French would give the Polish government a guarantee that if Poland was invaded, Britain and France would come in the war. Hitler massively miscalculated. His entire staff, during the whole bunch of them, were white-faced when the declaration of war came from Britain and France. Okay, so here he's in this war in the West he didn't want, and he doesn't want to kill them off. He wants to make peace with them. It's now June of 1941. And the Americans still aren't in the war, don't forget, folks. It would take till December 7th. 1941 for the Americans to come in the war. Now, do you think Hitler's back plan on this, Tom? I was always curious about this, and who better to ask than you, uh, an historian of, of great repute. Do you think Hitler's back plan was to kind of appease and make a peace with Britain, and then when the timing was right, in the same sense that he went in with Operation Barbarossa to attack the Soviet Union, once that was completed, maybe to go after North America, the United States? Do you think he ever wanted to take well, on the United States? I think sold a bill of goods. Uh, Hitler never wanted to conquer the world, okay, ever. That's sheer malarkey. It was British propaganda. If you want to get other people in your war, you got to make them feel threatened, too. Churchill was forever dropping hints about Hitler's plans to invade the United States. Sir William Stevenson, his operative who was in Rockefeller Center, in New York, uh, was busy whipping up dire plots by the Nazis to take over South America. Can I just interrupt you for the Canadian sure. audience's folks? He was a Canadian spy trained at Camp X. He started working to build up propaganda, as spies do. So I'm sorry to interrupt he you. A he was a brilliant businessman and a great athlete and a great Canadian, someone you could be very proud of. But his job for Churchill Everybody's job for Churchill was to somehow get the damn Americans to stop shilly-shallying around uh, and save Britain. Uh, and they failed. They massively failed. When you read the letters back and forth between Churchill and Roosevelt, you'll see Churchill trying every maneuver a parent tries to get a child to eat spinach. 
okay, <laughs> with about the same result. <laughs> and Roosevelt, A, he had to get reelected in November of 1941, right? And B, we didn't really want to go. We Americans didn't ever. Americans here did not want to go into that war, okay? And so it was unpopular. He was going to have to be dragged. And Churchill had miscalculated. He was convinced that he could sweet talk Roosevelt because Roosevelt is a great sweet talker himself. He had seven people in his office on any given day, six of whom had no power whatsoever, all thinking they were doing the same job and all excited about their power and what they were going to do. Churchill, Churchill was a slacker compared to Roosevelt's ability to maneuver people around and think he was going to do something he didn't, okay? Uh, so basically, Churchill miscalculated in thinking he'd get Roosevelt the war, which is one of the interesting things about the decisions Roosevelt later made when NASA arrived. Let's jump into that right away then. Okay, it's now May 1941. It was a year to the day that Churchill took power from Chamberlain in Parliament oh, and became prime minister. Okay. So an, an entire year, actually 11 months from Dunkirk, and we had what we call the phony war, or, is it, or some people call it the Sitzkrieg. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, th that's it. The Germans are sitting there in France, and they've got all of Western Europe. But they're not attacking England. Turns out that Hess and Hitler talked in June, right after Dunkirk, on the coast of France in a nice villa overlooking the English Channel. And at which point they decided that, that they needed to go to England and make a proposal that Hess should do it. And by September, Hess started planning the trip. September, he started flying around actually October December, no, through December, he worked with Willy Messerschmitt, the great genius behind the Russian fighter, or the, the uh, German fighter aircraft, to design a special aircraft, okay? This is 1,000 miles in 1941. This is not a small distance. Uh, it's 1,000 miles and he needs a craft that will go there and survive, that he can land with and get out of and have a negotiation. And no GPS, him. folks. Let me remind you of that. No GPS. No GPS. A very interesting navigation gear, but no GPS. So basically, the, the that long period of time was done in preparation uh, for the Hess journey, which finally Hess had four flights that were aborted. The radios didn't work. The engine overheated. And so four times he tried from January on, and the last, the fifth attempt, he did it in May. That's how detailed. Now, think of that for a minute, because what we've been told all these years is, uh, gee, poor Rudy Hess. He consulted the astrologers, and he went nuts. He grabbed a plane off the flight line at the Messerschmitt plant and flew off to England like a nitwit, thinking he could somehow negotiate peace because the poor guy was no longer popular in Hitler's inner circle, and he was desperate to get his power back. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, no, it doesn't. But we believe that for 75 years. And historian after historian tells that story. Furthermore, Hess started it. He wrote a letter to Hitler 
that his aide gave Hitler the day after the flight, in which he says, look, if it doesn't work, you can always say I went crazy and grabbed the plane. It's right in Hess's letter, okay? And so the British and the Germans agreed. Hess went nuts and grabbed a plane. But in reality, this was a very carefully thought through, very carefully prepared for operation. And the trick was, Hess spent months creating a treaty between Britain and Germany that had terms in it that until recently no one had any idea what the deal was. Why should England make a separate peace with Germany? I mean, would you trust Germany? They weren't going to ask for any more territory after Czechoslovakia, right? Okay, so basically the British not trusting the Germans makes a lot of sense. So this had to be really thought through, an irresistible deal. You want to know what the deal was? Number one, Germany would respect the British Empire and in no way interfere with any of its areas. Germany would withdraw from North Africa. The battle was going on with Rommel at this point. Okay. Germany would no longer interfere on the high seas. The wolf packs would be pulled out of the North Atlantic. Okay. And they didn't ask, Britain did not have to support Germany. It had to just simply not interfere with its continental ambitions. That's one. Two, Germany would withdraw its occupation forces in Western Europe. France would be given back to the French. Belgians would get back Belgium, etc., all up and down the line, with the exception of Denmark. Okay. And they had to have neutral governments. They weren't going to be allowed to put the guys who fought Germans. If they wanted to, Germany would be happy to give them contracts for war materials, etc. They could profit. Third, any damage done to any areas in Western Europe by the Germans would be compensated for. And the British were supposed to compensate the Germans for any damages they caused. Okay. Lastly, they stated in the document that Germany intended to attack Russia. So the British knew that Germany was going to attack Russia in June. They knew it. Okay. So look and look at the next point. Germany's got 93 divisions on the border with Russia coming together at the time Hess is flying over to Scotland, okay? And you asked a question, could they turn around once they beat the Soviet Union and turn around and go up to Western Europe? Sure, except for one problem. The tar baby problem. Turns out beating Russia wasn't so easy, okay? As a matter of fact, what most of us believed, I did, was that Stalingrad was the high watermark of the Wehrmacht in Germany. Nope. The reality is that Hitler knew as of September of 1941, just three months after Barbarossa commenced, that he would fail in destroying Russia. What he had to do was attack as far forward as he could and then fight a war of attrition. That's not what he wanted to fight. He thought he was going to have a blitzkrieg. So all those pictures we see with millions and millions of, of Russian soldiers flowing back as prisoners of war are irrelevant. Because if you think of what Hitler faced in Russia, it wasn't at all what he faced in Western Europe. He couldn't get around behind him. 
He couldn't push them up north and go through the middle of them because they were like bands, like the bars of a cell window. You go through one, and there's another bar. You go through the next one, there's another bar. And this, there were 10 bars all the way back to the Urals, every one of which had millions of men, new equipment, and by the second year of the war, better equipment than the Germans had, and short supply lines compared to what the Germans got. So Hitler was really, Barbarossa was a really rotten idea. It failed, and it's what destroyed Germany, not the battle in Western Europe. If not world domination, Tom, what was Hitler's ultimate goal? Because if he was willing to give all this land back, this conquered land back, France and Belgium and all the rest, and leave Britain alone, what was his ultimate goal? What was his desire? Exactly what he said in Mein Kampf. He wanted Lebensraum. He wanted living space for Germans. And he saw it in the East. Okay. Where there were Untermenschen, people who were not proper Aryans or even semi-Aryans, okay? Mm -hmm. they, were, they, were, they were only fit to be slaves. Some their species. land could be taken from them. Their natural resources could be taken from them. Uh, so basically, in the East, which is why he thought he was being very reasonable in his peace offer to the British. Because you've got to remember, Chamberlain himself said, after Munich, he said, you know, I don't think the British people care very much for some land they can't find on a map and can't pronounce. And, you know... Well, especially after the First World War, too, right? I mean, it was such a devastating war, and that was a big part of why the U.S. wanted to stay out of the war. They saw it as being drawn into yet another European conflict of grave, grave disaster. And they just exactly. wanted to stay clear of it. So this makes so, perfect sense. Please. So we're looking at a very different historical picture. One is Hess not only wasn't crazy, he was carrying out a mission for the Fuhrer that the Fuhrer was even more excited about than he was, since Hess, after all, was willing to destroy the British. And you have to remember, Hess grew up in a British colony in Alexandria, Egypt. He spoke English. He knew how the British did things. He was a perfect guy to send over as an envoy, all right? And he was a damn fine pilot. He was one of the best pilots in Germany. He actually won an award for uh, going around in the Zugspitze in the Alps on a, on a race. Um, so this was quite a well-planned mission. Was Hess's flight the initiation of the peace overture or had there been reachings out before that to test the waters if you will well interestingly enough our former president herbert hoover was in london in the early part of the war because he always cared about relief efforts in the in the uh, uh, low countries so he had a relief mission in london and he picked up every piece of gossip around at one point, the ambassador to the United States for Britain went to our secretary, undersecretary of state and complained. And he said, you've got to do something. Uh, he's found out about six peace missions where German envoys came through Ireland to meet with British uh, diplomats to discuss a separate peace. Was Churchill cognizant of any of this at all at that of point? Of course, Churchill, of course he was. Ah. You know, so who were they but, meeting with? 
I don't know because all the records have been destroyed. Oh, isn't that? Geez, where have we heard this before, JFK? Speaking well, of and, JFK, and JFK and Hillary Clinton and and, uh, and all the rest, uh, yeah. and Bill Clinton and Sandy Berger. A lot of record destroying going on these days. A lot of convenience uh, happening. Well, yes. So you've got the ambassador to Britain, which is the reason why I brought up JFK, of course, is partly because of the records being destroyed, but also because his dad was the ambassador. And he was telling the United States to let Britain get peace and keep the United States out of it. Well, he not only wanted to get Britain peace, he was perfectly willing to let the Germans take over Britain. Uh, Joe Kennedy was a snake in the grass, uh, and he got himself in such trouble that he had to be sent home. He was relieved by Roosevelt. Pretty alarming. That's very, very alarming. What does that tell you, folks? Yeah. A um, lot going on there. Okay. So Rudolf Hess bails out of his plane, finally, because he's going to crash. He lands somewhere adjacent to or near to Lord Hamilton's house. Well, let's think about that for a second. This guy has flown a thousand miles through the most heavily armed airspace in the world over Germany and then over Britain. And he lands about three miles away from his destination. I mean, that is a piece of navigation that uh, Captain Bly could appreciate. <laughs> so that, that, first of all, there's that factor, okay? And secondly, for those who thought he grabbed a plane and flew away, the German air defenses were so good they would have shot him down unless he had some arrangement with them, which in fact he had, and I detailed in some length. Uh, but he was so well situated that the British couldn't catch him. They know him. the entire record of his flight, his altitude, his checkpoints. He was 22, 25 minutes over Britain at the end of his flight. And the Royal Observer Corps did a whale a fine job spotting him, describing it. First, no one believed him. What do you mean? What do you mean there's a measure split 110 flying towards Glasgow? Are you out of your mind? They, he could never get back if he flew this way. They don't have enough gas to go from Norway, let's say, to Glasgow and back without special arrangements. Well, Hess had long-range tanks on his plane, something else you didn't have on the flight line back in Augsburg. Uh, so he actually crashed for two reasons. One is it was too dark. He couldn't see where the hell he was going. And by dead reckoning, with a rising moon blinding him, the ground covered with mist, he bailed out of a plane about to run out of gas because when it finally hit the ground, it was practically out of gas, which is why it didn't burn up. And the British have it right now. If you go to the uh, Imperial War Museum in Lambeth, there it is. Lambeth, by the way, is the old Bedlam Hospital for the Insane. And I think making a war memorial out of the Hospital for the Insane is very appropriate. <laughs> okay, so Hess is parachuted out. He is actually arrested by the Home Guard, quote-unquote. And I always picture this Hess with some guy with a pitchfork marching him along. Well, uh, that's quite the scenario. Very but... Yeah, but it is a, it's very hospitable. He arrives in this field, and he bonked his ankle. Remember, this guy's 47 years old, and to get out of his plane, he had to turn it upside down 
and drop out. And he knocked his ankle on the, on one of those tail structure coming down, so he was limping. And so the nice farmer who farmed that particular field, Flora's Farm, comes over, helps him out of his chute, and helps him hobble to his house where they fix him a nice kappa. <laughs> okay. And they say, you know, we have to call the home guard. And I say, oh, yes, I understand that. It has to, couldn't have been nicer about the whole thing. And the home guard comes, and they're perfectly nice. Uh, but eventually, he gets into the, he's captured by the military. Uh, and the military basically take him then through a little interrogation here to one way station to another way station. About three o'clock in the morning, he finally arrives in a hospital to get his leg treated. And that's where the next day he meets with Lord Hamilton. Now, there's some yeah. interesting stuff there. Instead of notifying Churchill right away that they have Rudolf Hess, folks, you know, the number one man for Hitler in captivity right here on the island, Churchill then is only notified the next evening as he's going to the movies. And Churchill says, Do you oh, believe that? Well, I, I you know this is what I've read. Okay, so so let me just finish with the quote because the quote is marvelous, and I am a fan of these guys as well. He says, sure. "Well, I don't really care. I'm going to see the Marx Brothers at the cinema." Oh. I love that quote. So it okay, makes tell a us great story. Tell it makes truth. a great story. But as you know, there's an entire book of things Churchill did not say that we ascribe to him. <laughs> okay, uh, and I'm not sure that that fits in there. But there's no way in hell, since the uh, since Hess was pretty much identified that evening by one of the interrogators who spoke German, and since additionally uh, one of the fighter command, I guess the number two guy, the vice chief of fighter command, was advised of this at like three in the morning. The fact that nobody in the military chain of command, much less the, the war cabinet was advised of this seems to me to be very unlikely. They knew all about it. Then Hamilton goes. That's where I was going to go. What, what happened with Lord well, Hamilton? Well, the, and the amusing up? thing is, Hess immediately upon the military showing up says, I need to speak to the Duke, and what I've got concerns him. Now, the Duke of Hamilton was the commander of all the air defense in this area. Everybody knew who the hell he was. And messages start flying from each of these way stops that S takes. Would the Duke of Hamilton please call his office, right? Uh, and Hamilton never responds, not once, okay? He doesn't show up. Why not? The upshot is that finally... Hess is in the hospital, I mentioned. The Duke of Hamilton comes home about one o'clock, and, you know, his dear wife says something like, did anything interesting happen at the office today, dear? Uh, and the answer is no answer, okay? But the phone rings about 2.30 in the morning, and the Duke of Hamilton gets up, leaves, and isn't seen again by the Lady Hamilton, till four o'clock the next afternoon. There's lots we don't know, and the records don't exist, okay? But we do know that the Duke of Hamilton met with Hess, 
Sunday morning because Saturday night was the night of the flight. And by the way, it's interesting. That was the worst blitz London ever had. Hess flew at the same time. It was a bomber's moon, a full moon rising in the east. Hess flew at the same time that, that the United Kingdom was pasted with terrible bombing as a diversion. Well, this People, begs the question. I guess Goring was part of this plot as well. No, no but no. The, it was planned. Why not use a bomber's moon for a massive raid to begin with? But there hadn't been any massive raids for a while. So why pick this particular date? Goring's implications in this gets more interesting because Goring called this terrific uh, Luftwaffe ace, Adolf Galland. You've probably heard of him. Uh, he had a pet lion and smoked cigars and was a hell of a great pilot. He calls Adolf de Galland, who's stationed on the French coast, about, I don't know, you know, seven o'clock at night, says, he says, Hess has gone mad as a plane. I want you to shoot him down. Well, how easy is it to find a plane drifting over the French coast? Galland thinks this is ridiculous, and he makes fun of it. He says, this is ridiculous. I can't possibly find him, and I can't catch up to him with my planes. If I'm behind him, I'll never catch up to him. And he's got to cross the coast. So this was obviously a bullshit uh, attempt to pretend to that Hitler was outraged and to shoot Hess down without shooting Hess down. It was pure theater. Uh, but it shows something interesting. It shows that Goering was in on it, too. Matter of fact, a yeah. lot of people were not, but a lot of people weren't in on it. For example, uh, the head of propaganda, Goebbels, wasn't in on it. Okay, so it's it's. Uh, any rate, the meeting with Hamilton is the one in which Hess said, "I came to you because we would like to negotiate a separate arrangement," and he gives him the peace terms and explains what's going on. At which point, Hamilton calls down to London for instructions. He says, "I can grab a plane and come down," and which he did. He then arrives. He then goes and briefs Churchill and everybody else. Uh, and uh, the line which about the Marx Brothers is uttered, and Hamilton's left cooling his heels. I've never got the feeling that Hamilton was invited to watch the Marx Brothers. Uh, so that's the first 24 hours of the Hess arrival. When did the plot to overthrow the government and take out Churchill as well, when did that start? Well, it was always the Nazis, you know, just just can't make a plan without building its fatal flaw in into it, like Barbarossa. You know, Barbarossa would work just great in Western Europe. It was a disaster in the steppes of Russia and the Ukraine. Okay, and here was a perfectly good plan to give a separate peace arrangement to the British, but oh no, we've got to get rid of Churchill too. They had no understanding of what a parliamentary government was like. They had no understanding that Churchill had been appointed by the king. Uh, that this, by making that a precondition of a peace plan, you doomed it before you started. So the Nazis, by it wasn't an attempt to overthrow Churchill so much as to get the British. And here's an interesting thing people don't realize: Churchill wasn't elected. He was appointed to take the place of Chamberlain. He had no electorate behind him. So he had no political support. And if the king had decided 
And so this is the rights of the king. The king had decided, went to Churchill and said, listen, there's this peace plan. I think it's interesting. I'd like you to consider it. If Churchill refused, the king to dismiss Churchill and to prorogue parliament, call another election. He could do it as often as he wanted to till he got a government that wouldn't negotiate with, with, with Hess and the Nazis. Uh, that's the that's monarchy. what the Nazis were after. So that's that, why they were, that's why they went to the Duke of Hamilton. The Duke of Hamilton was a top aristocrat at the court of King George. And how did the king react to this overture for peace? Was he we'll negative? Never was know, he... will we? Mm, all gone, isn't it? Isn't that interesting? Yep. Okay, so Hess is put in but, the but, Tower but, of I London. Mean, I mean, there's, we have an indication. Okay. Okay, we have the Duke of Hamilton, who supposedly has done his duty as an officer uh, reporting to the head of the War Cabinet and the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, everything he knew from what he said to Hess, okay? But he's also the head of the aristocracy and the House of Lords. The next day, he informs the king of the whole damn thing. So the king could have said, oh, Churchill can't do that. I mean, we're getting pasted here. Uh, we can't stand this. We've got no armor. We've got no heavy stuff. Nothing's preventing them from getting here. But a, the, the Royal Navy, uh, and I see no reason not to take a deal this good. He didn't do it. But he knew the deal was on the table. Well, I, need, I wanted to ask you, now, you know, you've got Roosevelt back in the United States. What was his reaction? Was he aware of Hess's overture and his flight and when it happened? He was given a, a laundered version of it, okay, uh, that basically Hess showed up. He, Churchill said he's, he seemed sane. Uh, it was quite a feat the flight that he made, Churchill was admiring of it. Uh, and he said he came with some kind of peace plan, which is not acceptable to us. Uh, and what Roosevelt, what, was there anything in it about the United States? And of course, that let the tom-toms about the threatens of the United States go forward in the correspondence. But yeah, but Really, the Americans never were properly informed about this until a peculiar thing happened in September. This is May as the flight. But in September, Henry Luce, the great and powerful head of Time Life, had sent a personal representative to England, basically because he wanted to know. He knew Churchill was a propagandist. Uh, he thought this happy talk that England is going to come through fine. See, he sends this guy over, and uh, now we know Churchill's doing everything he can to convince Roosevelt to get in the war. So Roosevelt is sitting back, doesn't even know about this Henry Luce mission. The Henry Luce guy shows up, and immediately Churchill opens the kimono. He sends his top intelligence guy to brief this guy, okay? tells them everything about the Hess mission, about the Barbarossa notice, about the fact that we were going to withdraw from Western Europe. All the details I gave you are for the first time revealed to Henry Luce's emissary in September of, of uh, 1941. Interestingly enough, we know this because 
the guy, the journalist who did it, was debriefed by a remarkable American military attaché at the embassy. Quite often, your embassy will debrief journalists and other people going through a country. The what what uh, this military attaché had been sent to England originally for back in the 30s was to let the War Department, in effect George Marshall's people, know whether the British were going to lose or there was any point in helping them. And this guy is quite tough. This colonel is extraordinary. He got a total debriefing. He then sent this his report to, it wasn't the Pentagon, the War Department, to the head of intelligence who showed it to Marshall. So we knew as of September, October, November, we knew exactly what was up. And one of the things Hess said, by the way, he said, we are exterminating the Jews. You remember the controversy? When did Roosevelt and everybody find out about the final solution? And the answer was, we didn't know anything about it until the Russians started moving into the uh, camps and the Polish intelligence came to us in 43 and 44 and told them. They knew in 41 because Hess told them. And they did nothing. Hess is unceremoniously put into the Tower of London, where presumably he remains there for the rest of the war. And, nope. Okay, what's the true story? First, he was up there in the hospital. Then they plopped him in a place called Buchanan Castle. There was a lot of interviewing going on, a lot of debriefing going on. Okay, then I won't take your, your viewers really don't want to go in the weeds on that. Can you just answer this one question on that then? Sure. I always heard Alistair Crowley, of all people, was one of the people to interview Hess. It's no. all bunk. Okay, thank uh, you no. for that. I, okay. I don't think so. I mean, there's, I've, I've got no evidence and no rumor that says so. But, I mean, for all I know, uh, Uncle Wiggly interviewed Hess because the numbers are all missing. All the stuff is missing. Okay. It got so bad that the head of MI6 in 1950s, they were destroying documents right on through the 50s and 60s to destroy all these files. Head of MI6 took 400 pages of documents. He swiped them out of the MI6 files because he didn't want the Hess story to be lost. These were up for auction in London two years ago. I've got a copy of them. Revealing but, stuff, no doubt. No doubt. Yes. Yes, it was. What are some of the revelations in there that we were unaware of? Well, a lot of them were confirmations of of what two of two things. One is that the British were very careful not to put in the record stuff that they knew, which we know because the journalists got debriefed by our military attaché, and I found the whole damn debriefing document that went to the War Department in the National Archives. So it's kind of like getting the answers at the back of the book. So we know what we what we learned from this is what the British allowed Hess to keep because the 400 page file that this head of MI6 purloined because he said that the, the, the files were being gleaned, they were being in effect destroyed um, this was Hess's own file there were documents, there were petitions he'd written to the king um, there were accusations that the British were trying to use truth serum on him and and uh, things like that. 
which, by the way, turned out to be true. Okay. British denied it. Did uh, they ever try to use Hess as a pawn or a leverage, if you will, with Hitler? Like, we'll kill him if you don't do this or anything along no, those lines? No, there was one interesting, like one interesting incident where, where the Nazis tried to arrange a trade for some top-captured people for Hess, but the British weren't having it. The British didn't want Hess out talking to anybody. Okay. Remember, the only thing we've heard from Hess since the early right. stuff I described to you was 20 minutes on the stand in Nuremberg. Right. And she was shut down by the judge. Isn't that interesting, too? We've only got a few minutes left, and I want to sure. get to Spandau. Okay. So, okay. So, I'm very quickly, folks, Rudolf Hess is tried at Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trials. He's allowed to live, which was a surprise to everybody because he was Hitler's number one man. He is put unceremoniously into Spandau prison, where he remains there, even though everybody else is released around him throughout the years. He remains there. Now, can you talk a little bit about that and how you were in touch with the camp commander and things of that nature? How much time do we have? Uh, six minutes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> let's, number one, let's look what's wrong with this picture, okay? Uh, we know, everybody knows who Albert Speer was, who was the head of all the construction and military for, got all the military equipment, did wonders for Hitler, used, killed hundreds of thousands of slave workers in the factories, okay? He got out. Okay, uh, he was part of the final solution. Admirals Raider and and uh, and uh, Dönitz, was the last head of Nazi Germany. They got out. Okay, and they were life. This they had life sentences. Okay, uh, everybody gets out. People. The worst thing you could be accused of. There were a couple of counts of the Nuremberg trial. There was basically uh, war crimes. Okay, like. Auschwitz and so forth. That's the worst thing. Then there was interrupting the peace of nations. Anybody had anything to do with the war at all got that one. Uh, so basically, but Hess had nothing to do with the final solution. He wasn't even there. He, he would, okay. Uh, and all he could be correctly, he certainly interrupted the peace of the world by, quote, he was one of the planners of Barbarossa, for heaven's sake. Uh, but you're not going to let him out when Spear gets out after a 20-year sentence? Very odd. And so I'm, my story, how I came into this, I was running a publishing company, and I was at the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is a big deal for Canadian publishers. McClellan and Stewart was my, my Canadian publishing contact. Uh, go to Frankfurt uh, for our sins for a week or two every fall and try and sell each other books for more money than they're worth. Uh, and that was my job. And I was there and I got a phone call from the top bureau chief of UPI who's up in Bonn. He says, Lipscomb, you got to get your ass to Berlin. You got to do it within 24 hours. I said, I'm trying to sell books. I'm, I'm, I've got a tough lot here. I can't come swanning up to Berlin. Why? He said, I can't tell you. You know who I am. And you know if I wouldn't say this if it wasn't worth it. So I go swanning up to Berlin in the worst rainstorm I've ever landed at Tempelhof in. I come in like a drowned rat to this one gorgeous German restaurant. And there in the back is my contact, my UPI man, Bill Long. 
And I said, so where's the prize pig? And he said, he'll be here, he'll be here. And I said, well, who is he? He says, the American governor of Spandau prison. Now, Spandau prison, because Berlin had a four-party power, it had the British, the French, the Americans, and the Russians, okay? Each one of those served for a month. They put the guard in, and they had a governor during the period of time they were in charge. This is the guy who was alone with Rudolf Hess, the last man in Spandau, for three months a year. Okay, I said, so I sat down and started to talk with him. Well, that's what got me interested in it. He quite correctly was relieved for trying to make money off a prisoner rather than do his duty as a U.S. Army officer four months later. But it started me on the track of asking the questions which you and I have been talking about tonight. And how did the SAS get involved in all of this? Do you want well, to talk about that aspect? Well, it, it's, I don't think we've got enough time to really go into much detail about it. But Three the reality minutes. is, Hess was murdered. He was strangled. And we found this out by the way he was, he couldn't have hung himself and had the injuries on his neck that he had. So it went right around like a, like a, a uh, uh, what do we got, garrot. If you've ever been in the army, you know how to garrot somebody. This guy was garroted. So who did it? Okay. Israeli intelligence later told Hess's son that it was an SAS group, mentioned the group, the barracks, what base they were at, the whole details came from Israeli intelligence. And basically, he got, that's all on the record. But needless to say, the British have not said, do you know why they killed him? He had a life sentence, but in June, he died in August, two months before he was killed, he was told he was going to be allowed to leave the prison and go home to the Alps and be with his wife and grandchildren. How old was he at this point? Ninety-four years old. You think they could have let him out, you know? I'm just saying. Oh, yeah? He's going to talk. Oh. So what are the British... What is the... Here's our friends, the British. What's the British myth? It's our finest hour. Never in the highest councils of government did we ever discuss any peace with the Nazis. Oh, really? <laughs> well, let me ask you this, Tom. In hindsight, you know, all these years later and everything, was Churchill right? No, he was did? wrong. Do you think he should have sued for peace and, and uh, accept? 90% of the damage to Western Europe and the casualties took place after Hess's flight. And the Holocaust, what would, ha would have? That's a separate issue. Let's just stop right there. If you could have gotten a separate peace with Hitler, and he went off to grab the tar baby of Eastern uh, of Russia and the Ukraine and never could come back again. Meanwhile, in December, just six months later, America's in the war. You made it, but you didn't risk anything. England gets a separate peace. France gets its own government back. How many people died in the years from May of 1941 until May of 1945. We were at war with Japan, right. but Hitler, three days after the Japanese attacked us, right. declared war on America. It was yeah. totally unnecessary. That it was, was nuts. Ridiculous.
he signed his death warrant right there without question. Okay, very quickly now, we're gonna we're gonna jump ahead um, with all of this. And looking back, uh, do you think history will ever rewrite history correctly, or do you think the revisionists, such as yourself, will get a chance to tell well, an I've honest got, story? I have a book contract. And in about 18 months, we'll see also what tough. happens when my book called Hitler's Secret Peace Mission comes out. Wow. Congratulations on that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Muzzle tough. That's wonderful but news. The, the, uh, a lot of things about World War II need to be reevaluated. Uh, we've got, we've got the, the myth I grew up on and you grew up on is one thing. Um, but there were lots of foul-ups in any war. I mean, Canadians know about Dieppe. And the Adzis people can tell you all about Gallipoli. Uh, and there's a sense among the colonials that basically the British will fight to the last colonial soldier. Uh, so on the one hand, dying in a war that could have stopped in May of 1941, think about it. As a child in England after the war, my father made us eat the rations the British ate. And I, being a kid, you know, I said, I protest. I said, it's not fair. We're Americans. I don't see why I have to eat that slop the British have to eat. Uh, they've got rationing. We don't have rationing. We can get anything we want to at the PX. Of the, and my father said, they went through this war like this. There's the music, my friend. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show, being a super trooper. It's been fantastic. Tom Lipscomb, folks, the, the book is due out in a year, let's say? 18 months. 18 months. And we'll Tom have time will be to back. Tom, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the play is called Last Man in Spandau. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Yes, this is YouTube. Thank you, my friend.